Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to Literary Arts, the Archive Project. I'm your host, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we are offering you an event from Portland Book Festival 2023. We have two wonderful poets whose friendship and fandom comes through in their conversation. We invited Major Jackson, author of most recently Razzle Dazzle, and he's also the host of The Slowdown, which is a poetry podcast and an email newsletter. It is truly one of my favorite things. I really recommend checking it out. It's so nice to have this poetry moment in your day. The podcast is usually really short and includes reading of the poem and the newsletter includes the poem. So just you'll thank me later. Treat yourself to The Slowdown. Um, and we invited Major Jackson to interview actually a former host of The Slowdown and a former U.S. Poet Laureate, Tracy K. Smith, about her latest book, To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. To Free the Captives is a personal manifesto on memory, family, and history that explores how we and America might, together, come to a new view of our shared past. In the discussion, Major and Tracy touch on a multitude of subjects, both personal, political, even spiritual, and they keep coming back to the importance and impact of language and the power that language has both for liberation, but also for captivity and enforcing hierarchy. And I think one of the things that makes Portland Book Festival so special comes through in their conversation, which is the genuine admiration and respect shared by Major and Tracy for each other's work and each other's intellect, and how much they enjoy talking and thinking deeply, even about thorny or complicated topics. I think it's really special to have that kind of space, especially these days, and I'm glad that we can share it with you on this episode of The Archive Project. Here's Major Jackson offering a beautiful introduction of Tracy K. Smith and To Free the Captives at Portland Book Festival 2023. So this is a real treat for me. I spent two and a half hours this morning talking to my friend Tracy, and so many good things were said. I was, I was like, gosh, we got to say this stuff on stage. <laughs> and I wanted to like get up and like, like okay, go, go. We're going to like zap our energy here. But I'm positive you're going to hear a great discussion, which is, now that I think about it, a very long ongoing discussion between us um, regarding language, regarding poetry, and the conditions out of which both she and I uh, write. So I have a, I'm gonna have to apologize to Tracy if this seems long and, and a little lavish in, in my praise, but every word I'm saying about uh, Tracy in this book, To Free the Captives, um, is really, coming from a place of deep, deep admiration. What I have always felt about the capacious body of work by Tracy K. Smith, both her poetry and prose, is that she takes us to a dominion beyond interiority, that celebrated space exalted by critics for its lyric cocooning. Her writing emerges from an immense and dazzling intellect that begins in a deep lyric space of wonder, then gently moves toward an unfolding, a self-discovery, sure, but more importantly, a journey that always lands at the site of a profound imagining of grace, communal care, and love. In this book, that communal is greater than you and I can conceive, which is the cosmic gift of her thinking, its destination, so to speak, to widen our myopic confines of selfhood and narrow conceptions of national identity, really toward a genitive realm of possibility and hope. She asks, what might we stand to gain if we were to, 
but adjust our gaze to the scale and the stakes of this other larger undertaking, this colossal enterprise. It is what gives her writing such radiance, this undergirding belief and indebtedness in collectivity, one powered by the love and example of her family and their survival strategies, but also by her own set of rites and rituals. In going into the archive, as we say, to write about the men and women in her family who served this country in various guises, in wars, in factories, in the psychological trenches of America, there is in To Free the Captives a joyful and poignant inheritance. She intimately knows her life is freighted, born out of a people who endured and worked to retain their humanity against the indignities and violence of America's longest war with itself. But she doesn't stop there, for the questions invite more questions, like walking through interpenetrating rooms. We exist within our networks and agreements that keep in place the very structures, institutional and otherwise, which segregate us into categories of existence that prevent us from seeing our woundedness, which is, as she says, our national condition. Racialized violence, she notes, is a symptom of that condition. Her exacting analysis exposes these concerns with such clarity. A second ago, I pointed to inheritance, which suggests a carrying of the past and moving forward the past with all of its untold stories. But early in the book, Tracy contemplates, and here I want to pause for an emphatic emphasis, presence, and asks us as readers to also expand our conception of history as a staid and static set of facts, but an interactive conversation with the past. She writes, I want to know whether there is some other presence that lingers in the wake, something arriving like light from across the expanse of space to tell us who and what we truly are and where or by whom our better efforts are required. I cannot imagine too many writers who are equipped, who is equipped to listen to the threshold of voices that feels at once intimate and assuring that commands our attention. Tracy is that writer, and I ask you to, again, welcome her to the Portland Book Festival. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Major. So Tracy's going to read an excerpt, and then I'm going to follow with some questions. And if there's time permitting, we might have a few questions from the audience. Thank you for that really generous, um, beautiful introduction. Thank you for being here. This is my first event around this book, which comes out in a few days. So I'm so grateful yeah. um, for the chance to start the conversation with you. Yeah. Your work is part of why I am a poet, and um, I feel like the community of poetry on and off the page is, um, is a project of liberation of the imagination, and I think the project of black poetry takes that notion of liberation to many places. You know, it's an individual possibility, it's a collective possibility for our people, for all oppressed peoples. But I also believe that poetry, if heeded, liberates everyone, even those we might imagine to be the oppressors. And so this is, is a book in which I'm kind of convincing myself of that. Um, but I would like to read a passage that a lot of the book does think toward um, the archive in which my family exists in fragments. Um, but part of it is also thinking through my own life. Um, and so this is a passage I'm going to read that has to do with the birth of my sons in 2013. Our twin sons are born into the world eight weeks premature. They will not be released from the neonatal intensive care unit for two and a half weeks. During their stay, a Florida jury acquits neighborhood vigilante George Zimmerman of second-degree murder for shooting Trayvon Martin, an unarmed 17-year-old child, a black child in a black hoodie. 
He could have been my brothers decades ago, or my father as a young man wandering Detroit. Blood or not, history instructs me to claim Trayvon Martin as kin. My postpartum heart herds him in. The news of the decision does not come as a great surprise, not because it is correct, but because America has had centuries to perfect the discounting of black lives. This jury, like others, has swept an age-old suspicion and an age-old doubt into a mound and heaped it onto their scale. America's streets and schools and cafes and boutiques are filled with doubt's debris, which tips the scale on occasions like these. In photos from his unspent childhood, Trayvon Martin's beautiful face beams toward the camera. In one image, he stands in a red Hollister t-shirt, arms loose at his sides, held safely in a familiar gaze. In another, he's at aviation camp, standing in profile, looking up from a page of text, a diagram, perhaps, of an object in flight. As a mother, I believe I can decipher some of the baby that lingers still visibly in him, something vulnerable that has not yet been pulled taut. He smiles, teeth parted, or else he has been caught on the cusp of speech. The theft of this young life, the needless and groundless but nevertheless familiar loss, adds yet more heft to the understanding that my own tiny boys are born fighting for their lives. Atticus arrives first. I wake up to a puddle in the bed, sheets, blankets, everything wet. No labor cramps, no quickening, but my whole body has woken itself with this bout of something like weeping. After the birth, the baby is shown to me for just a moment. I am allowed to hold him briefly to my chest, like a tiny comet, the scrawny, wriggling legs, warm vernix still slicking his skin. But there is some mention of his breathing, his lungs too young. Quickly, he is lifted away. Sterling is more hesitant. He has yet to descend. My doctor reaches in. I watch at first as if he is at work on an architecture that is not me. His arm disappears up, up. I had no idea my womb was so tall to puncture the sack. Has it really been two days of admitting and trying to forestall and then finally accepting the inevitability and then the necessity of this too early delivery? I am ready and I am not ready. For months I've been lurching toward the sight of them, toward the dream of their faces and what they bear. Did one of them feel the same? They could have stayed where they were, but they are here, squinting, hands fisted tight, shoulders raised, legs pedaling against the sudden air, the delivery room light. The first time I see the boys again, they are in the NICU, tubed through the nose and down the throat, slung with wires and tethered to monitors, blood pressure, pulse, O2 saturation levels, and I can't remember what else. The whole room hisses and beeps. What have I done? What has being born of me done to them? I weep. I feel at first as though I ought to leave them alone, to let their tired bodies sleep. Haven't I done enough? It is the nurse who urges touch. And then, a slow, quiet unfurling of the gaze, and something traveling through the skin from across ages to arrive at this life, this life, these lives, heavy with intent. They have set out and they have made it. Each little vessel is warm, it hums, it sends something toward me, into me, back to where it has dwelled, but the beginning is farther off still. Lifetimes and ages, strange to me, yet known somehow too. The breath, each little racing heart, each tiny pale finger curled around mine, they are mine, but they are more. 
lifetimes more. It's so clear, isn't it, that they've known, they know, they are tired from this knowledge, the distance they've traveled, the intent. Let it pulse into me. Let them give what they've come to deliver. Let them take what will feed, form, fill them. I could sit here all day. Is it day? Holding them, dipping my face down toward these faces, wholly theirs, and who else is there with them too? I am searching these faces, these tiny hands, the warm scent lifting off each downy head. Who is here? What have you brought? Who sent? Who sends you? And what can I do? What can I do but hold, but breathe, but love? That is what I am here for, why I ache, what I will do. I will love, love you. I am so afraid, but fear is nothing beside what you have come here to do. And I will help you. I will serve that wish. I love you. I will. I have always. I do. Photos of older graduates from the NICU line the walls at check-in. Kids whose healthy faces and broad smiles are a daily consolation. There's even a, an eight by 10 of a husky teenager in a high school commencement cap and gown. My husband and I claim the strength, the thriving of these children for our own sons. The smiling faces that walk us back from fear intervene upon the daily jag of tears. But we can't let down our guard. We refuse to, because right here in the waiting room where the TV stays on with the volume turned down, here with us in our coming and going, there is also often another face, which the camera cuts to again and again throughout the trial. He is beaming towards some earlier camera's lens, or he is peering out from under the drape of a sweatshirt's cowl. I'll stop there. Oh. Thank you. I have a series of questions, but I want to start with that, with that passage. Um, in writing about Atticus and Sterling and their coming to life, and their coming to life with their knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, it occurred to me in reading To Free the Captives that you manage, call attention to those thresholds uh, between the not yet born, the born, mm -hmm. the living, and the dead. Um, and it's, it's, I now realize after your reading that this is a through line, and I'm curious about that as a motif within the, within the work, calling attention to those kind of in-between spaces of existence. Yeah, it is. Um, I think of them as like portals or seams or something. And I think I first became really um, in need of, of claiming those spaces uh, soon after my father passed away in 2008. Um, when I became pregnant with my first child, Naomi. And so I was grieving this loss. I was writing poems about my father. I was writing uh, what would become Life on Mars. And I was also um, so interested in meeting this person that, mm. I was, that was gestating in me. And it consoled me to imagine that they knew each other, that they had colluded somehow <laughs> in him leaving and her arriving in this fashion. And... Um, it, it gave a different dimension to my experience of grief. Mm -hmm. And it made me want to fashion a space in my ima imagination for, um, you know, in my vocabulary, it's the universe, but it could be anything. Mm -hmm. um, what we belong to, this system of transfers and interconnections um, and purpose. Mm -hmm. And in um, thinking about the grief that we live with now, for one another, for um, all of our fallen um, brethren, no matter who we are, um, and for our nation, which is also um, teetering mm -hmm. in ways that are undeniable. Um, I wanted to think toward these sites of purpose mm -hmm. and power and things that are circling and circling back. Mm -hmm. And so looking toward 
my lost, you know, my ascended, um, my ancestors, and um, whatever purpose they continue to guard, that was helpful to me. And so a lot of this book is listening, trying to, in my own um, way, through research and through um, sort of speculative uh, thinking, trying to think about how the enterprise of freedom in their hands even now is still moving forward That's and right. how they're offering to help us in um, saving ourselves. Mm -hmm. To free the captives, I'm taken with the subtitle, A Plea for the American Soul, an entreaty which bears itself out not so much tonally, but its meticulous vision. And I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Why this book, and why now? Mm -hmm. I have begun to doubt that the logics we cleave to are sufficient mm -hmm. to understand who we are, what mistakes we continue to make, and what we might do to correct paths. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think the vocabularies that under, undergird those logics our, our, our vocabulary of political discourse or citizenship, I don't think it's sufficient. Um, I don't even think our, our view of time and order um, is sufficient to manage all the simultaneous crises. And so I'm pleading with us as a species to remember that we're larger than logic, mm -hmm. we're larger than the many hierarchies that are reinforced by logic, um, and I guess I'm inviting the vocabulary of the soul mm -hmm. to help us in some way. And what I mean by that, I think it's easy to imagine the soul as something we can escape to, a retreat from the weight of daily life, of civic life, of the violence that we live with. But I think the soul is something that, because it persists, reminds us of a deep accountability. Mm -hmm right, to our time and to the times that will follow us. And that feels really um, chastening and exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Am I correct in reading um, Captive be more than just our kind of historical kind of understanding of Captives, particularly within the context of <laughs> Afro-American history, but going back to something that you said and I think has been part of our ongoing conversation over the years is we're captive to language that does not, as you say, contain the complexities or even a vision of a forward movement, i.e. we're captive to, um, to cliches of thinking about ourselves. And I'm, I'm curious if you could kind of elucidate um, some of the intractable ideologies that mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we're also captive to uh, a market-based set of what's valuable. Even that word. Mm. I had a student. Market? Yeah. Or valuable. Like, or I had value, a student, yeah. a beautiful student named Nick, uh, years ago. Um, and when they graduated, I said, oh, I've learned so much from you. This was a poet who has gone on to medical school and who's mission in medicine is to create a better standard of care for um, trans patients. And um, I said, oh, Nick, I just have so much belief in you, and I want to be valuable to you in what you do. And they said, don't say valuable. Hmm. It's not a commodity, what we, what we offer one another. And I was like, oh, it's so true. Mm -hmm. And so our vocabulary, um, the hierarchies that, you know, really have been designed to justify atrocity, <laughs> social hierarchies that we still somehow tolerate because they're embedded in so many systems. The, the system of tenure at a university, the system of, of rank in the military, um, the system of airfare class categories and loyalty programs. Here. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is reinforcing a false and I think unjust way of, of looking at ourselves in relation to others. Um, and of course there's more, but those are some of the things that, that um, I, I'm worried for. 
And I'm worried because in many categories of civic life, I feel the weight of those ranks above me. Mm -hmm. But I'm also worried for the people who believe they're at the top. Because mm -hmm. I think that's a particular form of captivity as well, mm -hmm. to think you must defend your place mm -hmm. against people who might seek to encroach upon it. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about poetry and one of the imperatives is to not so much police the language, but to kind of lean into language that is going to um, ex excite within the soul, within the imagination, um, a different ordered, uh, a different way of kind of looking at, mm -hmm. at some of these particular challenges. Do you, do you carry that forward as a practice, as a poet, to kind of not let yourself Again, I know the answer. <laughs> Toss, tossing some balls there. Do you carry that as, as part of your practice to kind of not language be so easily slide into these ideologies that is going to reinforce some of the, some of the hierarchies that you were just mentioning? Mm -hmm. I try to, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the way I can feel that in my writing practice is um, when does language fail to render something anew for me? When does language fail to alert me to nuances and possibilities and contradictions within the things that I think I know? And I think metaphor is something I'm always looking toward. Even the way that a verb can activate a little metaphor um, one example I often give my students is like, sometimes as a parent, the only verbs that feel like they can adequately describe my experience of my children are verbs that come from the animal kingdom. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, like if I can think of my beautiful daughter as like a goat, you know, somebody who's got these little hooves that are scratching at something, I suddenly understand the dynamic of, of her vigor and my, you know, my, relationship to that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have to sort of shake off the, the received forms of describing That's things. Right. Um, it, it dwells everywhere, though. I think about how, um, I don't know, even the, the ways that we're taught to rank and rate things default to something that's flattening, mm -hmm. that depletes, um, not depletes our, our imagination, not just of the wonder or the gratitude, but also the multiplicity of, of, of traits that any thing or one mm -hmm. innately has. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think about that. This is a book in a lot of ways that I feel was written through my ear. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. obviously there's a, a cognitive level, but I'm listening to rhythms and sonic patterns in language as a way of perhaps finding a new path to, through logic. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that feels like a, a facet of my newer work. Mm -hmm. Speaking of language, early in the book, you make a startling distinction between the free and the freed, compelling for how it collapses historical time, particularly between our official notions of America's reckoning with itself and the ongoing struggle to be viewed, ongoing struggle, ongoing struggle to be viewed as human and while defending our dignity. You write, my era I now see had been believing I was free, that freedom had long ago been won for me. By the way, speaking of your ear, mm -hmm. I can hear the gorgeous cadence of that. Is that a line from a poem? Anyway, <laughs> should be. Could you elaborate further the cost of that illusion mm -hmm. between thinking you're free? What, what is that? Mm -hmm. Well, it neatens up the notion of America as a thriving and successful democracy. And it also shuts down a certain vocabulary of recompense mm. um, to say, you're free. It's the logic that allows all of the people we know in those difficult conversations to say, that was hundreds of years ago. That now is now, let's, let's move forward. Um, when in reality, I believe our quiet understanding in our collective American imagination is that some people are innately free 
And in this country, that's attached to whiteness, whether, you know, I know many ethnic groups became white over time in America's history, but it's a myth that that belonging brings with it in what I'm describing as kind of an a priori freedom. And all the rest of us who descend from histories of violence, of subjugation, of occupation, of settler colonialism, who've been liberated, you know, from literal chains, are freed. And that means there's a limit to what we can be, um, to, to what our requests can, can um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. There's a limit to what will be tolerated. Mm -hmm. um, there's a sense that, well, look what you have now. Um, stand up and, and get going with that. When, when those of us who belong to this category want to scrutinize history and talk about failures and um, betrayals, we're often you know, accused of something like sedition. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think in the archive, my exploration even of, you know, just some familiar family history, it assures me that we're also subject to greater forms of scrutiny. And one little example that came to mind in, in describing that is like, it's like in America we are constantly being followed in a department store. <laughs> May I help you? May I help you? May I help you? Um, as if we have no business here. Um, and so I'm raising this distinction as a way of challenging us past it, both past the notion that there is something um, absolving and uh, just reifying that dwells within our current understanding of, of the word free mm -hmm. or, or freedom, and that there's a, a hard and fast border between people based on the histories they come from. Calling attention to that disrupts the grand narratives of a democracy, as you, as you said. And we also know that so much of the work written by, um, by African-Americans have also disrupted those easy mm -hmm. notions. And so there's a systematic attempt to remove the books that might give us a fuller, more complex understanding of a history that is not as neat as we would like to be. Mm -hmm. um, how, how is To Free the Captives pushing up, working against these particular efforts? Particularly as I, you know, we, there's the stories of your, your family serving in wars. There's a story of your family suffering indignities on their jobs. Um, it gives texture to a history that we really want smoothed out. So I'm curious about your how you are seeing your, this book mm -hmm. operating within that, that mm -hmm. exchange. I think it asks us to attend with fresh ears and eyes to lives that history tells us are small mm -hmm. and to think about how they too, or perhaps especially, have been stewards of history and stewards of um, some of those tenets of, of democracy. Um, but there's a part of this book, and I wanted to start by reading something in which I'm you know, present, um, that's actually thinking about the effects of the American imagination, not just on my ancestors, but on me. So there's a, a chapter in the book where I'm thinking about what the American ma imagination is and um, thinking about the ways that we're encouraged to imagine that we can leverage our standing and freedom against, the, um, against others. Mm. Um, if I am more worthy than you, I can leverage that and ascend a rung higher in this hierarchy that we, that we belong to. And so I look at this, at my first marriage, which um, straddled a border. I, I was married for uh, several years to someone from Mexico. And there was power that I could claim, even though I didn't always consciously do so, uh, as a result of my citizenship. Um, as a result of, you know, even my, at that point, meager earning power, the guarantee that I could, that I could work in this country. And I think that my ex-husband was also able to feel a kind of leverage because I was black and he was not. And so race became, um, you know, we were teetering in a lot of ways. 
um, wasn't all like active conflict, but I think that we are all making, doing the, this kind of equation making. Mm -hmm. And we do it so efficiently we don't even realize that we're doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm hoping that maybe laying some of my own experiences out there might embolden or invite a reader to think, oh, actually I'm in, I'm involved in this kind of transaction. Again, there's the market yeah. um, as well. Yeah. You're, the insights that are in this book, I think, are um, they're profuse and they're profound. And I got to work really hard to get some little nugget of like, with, it takes me months, actually. Um, how does, you know, how do you advise writers to see beyond the beyond, to see, like, there's a truth, but then there's the truth behind the truth. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that reading? Is that, um, is that self-care work? Where, how, how have you, mm -hmm. I've always thought, you, I, I met her when she was an undergrad, and I, even then I, I dis discerned this just transcendent space that you, <laughs> Um, I, feel, I felt the same way. You were like <laughs> two years older than me. So oh, yeah, that's like... right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we have to get creative if we want to learn, if we want to be able to, this is what writing does. It is a means by which you can teach yourself things you didn't know. Mm. That's what's always excited me about poetry in, in particular. It invites you to look at something in such a way as to, land on revelation, and you're the, you're the vehicle for that. It's your vision, your vocabulary, and your asking that helps that happen. And so I think when we're eager, as writers or just people, to learn something new, to think about new possibilities for just living together with others, we have to begin to look with, with different eyes, mm -hmm. um, looking toward um, the lives of my forebears was helpful because they, um, they, they improvised a lot. They um, viewed struggle or challenge as an opportunity to literally make do, to, mm -hmm. to gather up you know, their loved ones more tightly and, and think about new strategies. Mm -hmm. um, I tried to see if I could even imaginatively set myself down a little bit, like in the rooms, in the houses, on the, you know, the, the neighborhood grids that, you know, documents help me to, to find about them, and to ask for a little bit of their vision to guide me. Mm -hmm. um, there's a large through line in this book that has to do with the practice of meditation, which I took up in 2020 under all the stress that, that we were living with, and that became a kind of dialogue with others. Um, and I think I call that a counter logic. Mm. A and counter? A counter logic. A counter logic, yeah. um, And I, I think about other counter logics that have sustained um, the people I descend from. One that I write about is the ring shout, mm. which is a spiritual practice that um, I think puts us in touch with many different moments in time and gathers um, a sense of possibility and, um, and history together. Um, I think we have to be bold in forging yeah. these other um, tools, yeah. you know? I share that experience. I, I know that was an important poem in your collection, Wade in the Water, and I was so happy to see it. And, um, and it takes me to another theme in the book. Um, I wonder if you could talk about writing and presence, how interactive your understanding of the known and unknown through writing, how writing this book and that classical notion of the essay feels more to you like a conversation. Mm -hmm. How do you actively listen and move through inner conversations? What are your embodied set, I know it's an embodied set of writing habits mm -hmm. and practice that attune you mm -hmm. to hear? Well, you're here to hear about this book, so I'll be honest with you, but it's still like funny to me to talk about. I spent a lot of time before writing each time asking or summoning my ancestors and guides, anybody who was willing to be useful to my 
um, re-envisioning of the history I descend from and the history I am in the middle of. And I felt them. I think that um, the intention to open up the aperture is huge. Mm -hmm. You can think of it in literal terms, as I do, to say my grandmother and unnamed ancestors could come to my aid and guide me to certain um, records and choices and language that would be fruitful. Or you can think about it in um, maybe metaphorical terms. I want to bring myself toward a larger sense of what's useful. I'm going to imagine that there are other value systems that can inform mine. Either way, what I think you, you're doing at that point is augmenting the terms of possibility and hope. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's what, that's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's what um, many of us who are creators are trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, because everything that we live with is telling us of endings. <laughs> Even Siri out there is telling us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's a that's a that's a practice. Um, I think to imagine that there is something we haven't, like a threshold we haven't yet crossed, that could be welcoming and fortifying and instructive is a reason to keep, to keep listening, mm -hmm. to keep writing, to keep having conversations like this, mm -hmm. and to accept that democracy's dying and that there's no way we're going to come together as a nation that has so long been divided is to say, it's over. Mm -hmm. these, are the, these are the last throes of something, but I don't think we can let it die. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's where the imagining comes in for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it, Maybe it's like, um, visioning, envisioning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a little bit uh, in that chapter on the American imagination where I do say, what is the imagination? Oh, it's an engine of creation. When we recognize that there's something we lack, the imagination is the resource by which we create something to fill that lack. And likewise, when we imagine there's something that is negative, dangerous, the imagination is what we must turn to in trying to figure out how to arrest that and replace it. Mm -hmm. So I think, it's, um, I think it's valid to go in and say, what's the largest set of tools and terms I can claim, and then to see what they yield. Mm -hmm. Is it inevitable, that imagining? And I guess I'm asking that because I once said to a poet that we both love, Yusef Kumayaka, that we as human beings need some sort of outlet by which to express our reality. And I was shocked that he disagreed with me on that. <laughs> um, and the urgency of not just bearing witness to one's life, but the necessity for survival seems like that emerges from a place of inventiveness, what you were mentioning earlier about our ancestors making do, that improvisation that we experience sometimes in the music and the art really is coming from a place, I think, of profound kind of, not last resort, but a certain kind of like assertion of the self mm -hmm. against all the odds. I'm here, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and here we are in the last throes, right? I mean, like we are living in the times, it seems to me, that even the idea of exchange, we want a frictionless society, to use the words of a friend. Um, somehow, we can't even have those, have those conversations. Mm -hmm. It's because we've been, we've been wounded, and there's a lot that's interested in scaring us mm -hmm. out of going to challenging places. But we're, we're equipped to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking a little bit off stage about the um, experience I had as poet laureate traveling uh, to different rural communities in this country um, and talking about poetry. And what that also meant was crossing what we've been taught to think of as a, as a political divide. Mm. And yet, we were able 
to listen to one another, to honor one another's memories and experiences, and also to say, I know you see this line in this poem, which is about a person's belonging in a place that doesn't welcome them. I know you see it this way. I also see it in this other way. What do you think of that? Mm. And having these conversations that led us to, you know, allowed us to teach one another, um, to remind one another of things. I think that's another example of what you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Like we, it's only an end if we just refuse to listen. Yeah. I share Shane McRae's admiration who wrote a wonderful review of Tracy's book. I share his admiration of your eloquent and compressed prose. It's a kind of flow that when I teach my students your work that I've termed among, um, among classes as the Smithian effect. <laughs> it's such a gorgeous appeal to the reader's ear and imagination, and I'm curious about what are you most conscious of achieving when writing prose and when writing poetry, or do they, and you're, there's no distinction for you? Hmm. When I sit down to write a poem, I know that I have the opportunity to leap. You know, poems are kind of cinematic in a way. They leap forward in time, they can flash back, or they're like dreams, or they can be where you, you are in one scene or moment or reflection, and then suddenly the, um, the fact that this thing is similar to another allows you to cover all this, you know, massive distance. And when I sit down to write prose, I think, oh, I have to do this linear work. <laughs> I have to cover that distance on foot, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I actually don't think that's true. This book and even the little pa few passages that I read, what sits between them are leaps like that, mm -hmm. where we go backwards in time, where we go to other contexts. And so I'm beginning to think that language um, is capable of covering any distance that we want, or that we're willing to. And that there are, you know, I'm not, I don't have a very scientific mind. I wish I did, yeah. but I like the metaphors scientists create. And so when they talk about the true nature of time, it's not linear, but it's like it folds up yeah. and down and up and down. And I think yeah. language does that really beautifully as well. Yeah. We, can, we can move like that or we can, we can leap around or, or zip across. Um, so maybe the only thing that I carry with me across genres is I have to be asking questions to which I do not know the answers. And I have to be listening both in and outside of logic mm -hmm. because the logical route can't always capture all of the dynamics of possibility um, that dwell within those questions. Mm -hmm. So the, this book is, is poetic in a lot of ways, but it's also trying to think forward in time. Mm -hmm. This might be my last question. Um, in preparing uh, to write the book, I'm curious about the conversations you were having with family. I'm curious about the archives. I'm curious about your thinking about your marriage and going into some of those anecdotes that you, that you tell. And what books or music were you <laughs> reading and listening mm -hmm. to while writing to free the captives? Well, some of those first conversations were with my uncle, my father's sole surviving sibling. He's 91, uh, my uncle Richmond. And I had a lot of questions for him about his childhood and about the land they grew up on and the experience of family and um, some of the things that he knew about my father that I didn't. And his voice, which sounds so much like my father's voice, it just kind of changed the terms of this book for me. Mm -hmm. I thought I wanted to write a book about uh, the America that we live in, and in some ways I have. I didn't know my family was going to be the gateway into that. Yeah. I, to be honest, it was almost a tactic of procrastination that led <laughs> me into all of the archival stuff. <laughs> And then once I got there, I said, oh, maybe my uncle can tell me more. And then soon I'll get started on this book. Yeah. And the more he told me, the more I felt like uh, my father and their ancestors saying, this is the book. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so that was really exciting. And so also some of the music um, that I associate with them was helpful. I talk a little bit in the beginning of the book about Otis Redding mm -hmm. being helpful to me during that uh, a really heavy period of 2020. And so going back to some of the music my father loved um, helped me feel myself to be in his presence. Mm -hmm. um, Baldwin was emboldening to me in, in thinking that I wanted to write essays about America, about what we, not just what we owe to one another, but what we owe to the past. Mm. And I always you know, thought, oh, it's back there behind us, but no, it's way up there off in the distance because it came first. And it's, it's turning back and saying, come on, mm -hmm. pick it up. Let's, let's keep going, we're not done yet. Mm. Um, and so all of the voices that felt to me to be enduringly committed to that, mm -hmm. that project were, were helpful to me. Mm -hmm. Everyone, let's thank Tracy K. Smith for her music, wow. her thank work. You. That was poet and author Tracy K. Smith discussing her new book, To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul, with poet Major Jackson. This event was recorded in front of a live audience at the Portland Five Newmark Theater at the Portland Book Festival on Saturday, November 4th, 2023. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Matthew Workman and Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Our intern is Ada Halstrom. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.